Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. All right, friends. If you powered through this far, you can make it through esophagus with me. Um, in case you didn't see my colorectal talk, my name is Dr. Kimberly Helseth. I'm a surgical resident at Orange Park Medical Center, which is near Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I am currently in my fourth year, and I forgot to say this in the last video. Um, I'm currently, uh, fingers crossed, planning on flying into breast surgery fellowship, uh, breast oncology for next year. So keep your fingers crossed for me. <laughs> All right. So esophagus is actually oddly a chapter I really love, but I find that it's very intimidating to a lot of um, residents because it's not something that we deal with very often. And for that reason, it's very highly tested. So again, always go back to your anatomy, always go back to what you're thinking about and why you're going to do what you're going to do. Don't just learn rote memorization. Well, now it's time to do the Ivor Lewis because that's not going to help you when you don't know where you're going. Um, if you have your core basics down, you can usually suss out the right answer. Not always, but usually. All right. So anatomy. No, your esophagus travels through your neck, into your uh, chest, and into your abdomen. And the approaches for those are different. The innervation and the blood supply is different as well. Cervical tends to be uh, cricopharyngeus to your thoracic inlet. Thoracic runs from your inlet to the hiatus of your esophagus, kind of like, you know, your GE junction. And then your ab abdominal is in your abdomen. Um, your cricopharyngeus is essentially your upper esophageal sphincter. You can kind of marry the two in your head. And you always want to remember that darn recurrent laryngeal nerve that you will never escape. It shows up in thyroid. It shows up in esophagus. It shows up in a lot of your, your vocal everything. It shows up everywhere. Um, and if it's injured, that can cause impairment in swallowing as well. Um, and uh, the most, the anatomically narrowed regions are the areas that will perforate because they're smaller, they're harder to get around. That's where you're going to cause your perforation. So you're narrowing, you have one in the neck at your cricopharyngeus. You have a couple in your chest where the vasculature causes a narrowing, a natural narrowing around the esophagus. Um, there is technically another one at your lower esophageal sphincter, which as it notes quite astutely, is not a real sphincter, but we call it that because that's how most people understand it. Technically, it's an area that's pinched in by your diaphragm um, that causes a, um, a closure when you have increased um, pressure in the stomach, seals shut, unless you have reflux. Next slide. Um, so the other really fun testable point, which is especially relevant when we get to esophageal cancer, there is no serosa. There is no serosa. Please do not stage your esophageal cancer and try to tell me that it's in the serosa because there's no serosa. So you'd think that that people would remember that, but they won't because we just went through this in colorectal. Everybody has a serosa except the esophagus. Um, so your mucosa is squamous until it becomes columnar, which again shows up in Barrett's esophagus. Um, your, uh, <coughs> in your neck, the esophagus gets its blood supply from the inferior thyroid. In the chest, it tends to be direct branches from the aorta. And in the abdomen, it's your left gastric. 
And again, why is any of this relevant? Because surgically, it makes a difference what blood supply is uh, feeding your organ of interest. Um, nerves and uh, basic anatomy from medical school. We don't have to go through that too much. Um, vagus nerve uh, innervates your cricopharyngeus via your recurrent laryngeal, which we went over. And lymphatic drainage, again, always important for your cancer. Um, your upper two-thirds goes up, lower two-thirds goes down. Um, the most common site for iatrogenic perforation, anytime you're doing an endoscopy with an attending and you see their sphincter just a little bit, it's usually around Killian's triangle because it's a tight curve to get up and around. And you do kind of have to push a little and follow the natural curvature. If you don't, though, you can very easily perforate. And that's why it's one of the most common sites of iatrogenic perforation. It is a natural area of weakness. Next slide. <coughs> um, swallowing is less important. Uh, you do want to know your pressures for your upper esophageal and your lower esophageal sphincter, which again is still not a sphincter, but we call it that anyways. Um, upper esophageal pressures are high when you're not eating so that things do not enter in and they are lower so that when you're eating, things can enter into the esophagus. This is our grand evolutionary response to, you know, not trying to put food in your trachea. <coughs> Speaking of. Uh, the lower esophageal sphincter um, has a resting high pressure, and then it, again, also relaxes um, with paracelsus to permit entry of food into the stomach. Next slide. Achalasia. I used to find achalasia very intimidating until you really sit down and just think about what is happening from an anatomical sense. Um Achalasia is a lack of peristalsis. If things can't move forward and you have, you also get this hypertrophy and this tightening at the lower esophageal sphincter. See how your hand instinctively does that? This is why it's associated with the so-called bird's beak finding, where you get an area of obstruction caused by an area of proximal dilation. So when they try to eat, food gets down to a certain point and has nowhere to go. It hits an obstructive point and bounces and re, um, is usually regurgitated. Um, <clears throat> it can show up in sneaky ways. It can show up with heartburn, chest pain. Um, people typically will tell you I am vomiting and the food is completely undigested. Um, if they have progressive dysphagia, you have to make sure you ask them because no one will say, yes, I have progressive dysphagia. Um, if they've tried... You know, if they weren't able to eat cheeseburgers and then they were eating mashed potatoes and then the mashed potatoes weren't working and now they're eating ensures and now they're having trouble with the ensures, that's progressive dysphagia. Um, you do tend to get that very classic bird's beak and sometimes that is the picture that will show up on your exam. Like legitimately Google it, the first picture, know that image. Um, you need to make sure you do a full workup because what else can cause obstructions in the esophagus? Cancer obviously. So you don't want to just assume it's your, um, it's achalasia until proven otherwise. Uh, this is also when your manometry is going to come into play. Manometry is an evaluation of the pressures in the esophagus. Um, so if you have someone swallowing and there's no pressure where there should be pressure, lack of peristalsis, fine. Um, 
So if you have a lack of a lower esophageal ref, um, relaxation because it's hypertrophied, right? It can't relax. Like, see how intense you are? You're like, oh, I can't relax. And nothing's peristalsing, nothing's going to pass through. Um, you can try calcium channel blockers, but really this is a surgical problem. Um, the GI docs have gotten really clever and they try to take over from our surgical problems and they'll, you know, inject Botox and they'll dilate, which by the way, always think when someone's dilating something that's chronically tightened or obstructed or whatever, high risk for perforation. So you will oftentimes get a call, hi, I've been trying to dilate this patient with achalasia and they perforated. That's very common. Um, the definitive management is surgery. You need to make sure that you do a thorough myotomy. They always like to ask. You need to go at least um, five centimeters above the lower esophageal sphincter and at least, um, I'm mixing, I might be mixing up my numbers. I apologize. I think it's five centimeters onto the stomach actually, and at least two or three centimeters onto the esophagus itself. So very thorough myotomy to allow that area of chronic tension to relax. Now, what have you ironically given them? You've given them reflux. So you need to tell this patient, this is a pro-reflux surgery. That's why you typically do a fundoplication. If you're like me, I'm very visual. So I kind of have to picture now I've opened that esophagus. It's wide. So how I'm going to narrow it. I'm going to take the two edges of the fundus, the fundus, not the body, and perform a, par a partial wrap, not a full wrap, but a partial wrap to recreate that tightness, that area of the quote-unquote sphincter and um, suture it in place. They will still have reflux, but if you don't do that, they will have uncontrollable, unsustainable reflux. Next slide. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at AbsiteSmackdown.com. Um... Scleroderma, I'm going to kind of go very briefly over scleroderma because it doesn't really get clinically seen all that often. It does show up on exams, but it's more of an association. You have a patient with concerning findings that seem like achalasia, but they also have all these other extra intestinal manifestations. That's when you're going to think scleroderma. Um, scleroderma shows up with skin changes, and you again get that very similar lack of parasulsis. Um, but it, um, it's, a, it's more of a dysmotility rather than um, a lack of the nerves themselves. So you lose the smooth muscle due to the sclerodermal changes. Um, and this one is not usually surgical. This is not like achalasia where I'm making fun of GI for trying to steal our thunder. This is usually medical because you're treating the, sclero the, the scleroderma. Uh, excuse me. Um, and... Um, gastric lengthening procedures like a colleague's gastroplasty can sometimes be necessary if you have a really intense degree of scarring. You kind of, again, you have to take a look at the picture, but you perform a stapling across the stomach to kind of create, you kind of mobilize your GE junction, which is okay because you don't have lower esophageal sphincter, although you do have to be concerned about the um, gastric cells versus the esophageal um, cell types and the exposure to acid, et cetera. Um, but regardless, it is a good procedure if you don't have enough length. Um, next slide.
Um, DES is not really something that you see in clinical practice very much, but it is something you need to know. Um, I, <laughs> I can kind of think of it like a really like ooh, intensive squeezing of the esophagus. Oh my God, it's really painful. So that's the main symptom. It's not so much dysphagia or vomiting or uneaten food, or you can't tolerate your insures anymore. This is chest pain. Um, and it, it usually shows like, you see that radiology there? that weird esophagus where you get some kind of flow passing through and it's got these weird nubbly bits, that's your DES. Um, your lower esophageal sphincter is fine, but your muscles are spasming because your esophagus has a lot of muscles in it and they can spasm. So you treat the muscle spasm. You treat your nitrates, you do your calcium channel blockers. I've never, I would not do Botox, but you can, sure. Um, you can dilate, but again, you're dilating in an area of intense tightening and you have to be careful. Um, I, this is not typically a surgical problem. You can do a myotomy, but it doesn't resolve the painful stimulation because the problem again is the tightening of the muscles. So your symptom is pain. It's not so much the esophagus and the eating itself. Uh, next slide. Uh, nutcracker esophagus. Um, it, I often in my head, I will say I often conflate these two, um, but it's a dysmotility disorder as well. <clears throat> you treat them the same way that you would treat your DES. Um, and again, Heller is always an option, your Heller myotomy, but it's not the starting point for this. Um, next slide. Uh, one more quick point, actually, about um, dysmotility disorders. If I were you and you're a gunner, which you are because you're watching this in September unless your program made you, but if you are, um, I would really strongly recommend looking at manometry. The color manometry is starting to show up on exams and questions, so make sure you know what does an area of high intensity look like, a high-pressure situation. So blue and green on the collar tends to be a low resting state and then a high pressure area is yellow, orange, red. Um, and no, is your lower esophageal sphincter supposed to be high pressure right now? No, that's a problem. Is your lower esophageal sphincter supposed to be at a high resting tone right now? That's achalasia, etc. Um, next topic is going to be diverticuli of the esophagus. Um, as with all diverticuli, remember True diverticuli, the whole thing protrudes. Pseudodiverticuli, only a little bit kind of sneaks out through the middle. That's your mucosal pseudo or um, false diverticulum. Um, so zankers is that area up here in the neck that we talked about before in Killian's triangle up by your cricopharyngeus. It tends to kind of like if your cricopharyngeus is like a cup, it kind of just kind of splutes out over the edge. If it's a very small diverticulum, you are usually not able to treat it with anything other than surgery. If it's a large diverticulum, you can treat it endoscopically. And for years, this did not make any sense to me. I was like, a larger thing should require surgery. However, it's kind of um, antithetical because an endoscopic stapler cannot fit into a small opening. It requires a large opening. So when you staple across, you create a one true lumen and you obliterate your diverticulum. 
these patients often will come in complaining of foul breath, pain with swell, uh, pain with swallowing, excuse me. Um, and you do want to resect these for symptomatic ones. And this is a pulsion diverticulum. This is, again, that little high pressure point and area of weakness equals diverticulum. Um, Mid-esophageal are also pulsion or traction depending on malignancies or granulomatous infections. Um, and epiphrenic down by your diaphragm. Those are associated with motility disorders. Um, these are also at risk of perforation. Uh, they Sometimes you staple them. Sometimes you have to do a diverticulectomy um, with a, usually also a diverticulopexy. Excuse me. Someone made up these words, and it's just not nice how many words they smashed together. Uh, so you want to do your workup for your esophagus the same way you always do your workup for your esophagus. You're going to do endoscopy, barium swallow, or swallow study, depending on your institution, how they call it, um, manometry to check for resting pressures. And uh, you can even perform a pH study or calculate a Demeester score. I'm not sure who Dr. Demeester was, but I do know that a Demeester score greater than 14.72 is associated with elevated um, acid levels in the esophagus. Essentially, they put a small probe at the base of the esophagus and have a person walk around um, for at least a day, and they measure the acid concentration throughout the day, and then the score is a cumulative score. So if you have a high score, it means you have a high presence of acid throughout the day. Um, next slide. Um, webs and rings, everyone gets really worried about webs and rings, but really they're not that common. And also they're not dangerous. They're just funny looking for the most part. Um, they are usually asymptomatic. Sometimes you can get dysphagia. Um, they're more interesting for the associations than they are for the actual diagnosis and treatment. Um, you can get a plumber Vincent syndrome, which is an iron deficiency, so if you have someone coming in with a plumber vincent syndrome, they might need some sort of esophageal evaluation. And a Schatzky's ring, if you're ever doing a GI rotation, because at my facility we do um, endoscopy with one of the gastroenterologists and also bariatric surgeons, but uh, it's fun to see how the GI docs do it. They just whiz through the endoscopy. Um, you will see a lot of Schatzky's rings and it looks terrifying. You're like, oh my God, I need to resect that. That's cancer. It's reflux. It's nothing. You don't even need to do anything about it. It's kind of a letdown. Uh, next slide. All right. Our good old friend, hiatal and parasophageal hernia. There are four types. They, um, you want to know basically where the hernia is in relation to the GE junction. So if your GE junction is here, um, your type 1 hernia, the GE junction does not move. Type 2, your GE junction can move, and it can include the fundus. Type 3, your GE junction, your fundus, and a large portion of your body are in your chest. Um, type 4, your fundus, your GEJ, and typically your transverse colon, although a lot of organs can sneak in there, are in your colon. Or, excuse me, goodness, are in your chest. Um, if... Uh, your sliding hiatal hernias are very low risk for causing any kind of strangulation or necrosis. All the other ones, typically you do want to think about repairing them. Um, 
a true parasophageal hernia where the GE junction is fixed and the fundus is snuck up past it, that can be very dangerous because it's in a tight, narrow place. And like any kind of tight, narrow place where a piece of intestine or colon or stomach or whatever sneaks in, it can become strangulated, just like a hernia, just like any hernia anywhere. Um, uh, chronic Cameron's ulcer is a, a chronic ischemia related ulcer. It does not typically perforate. Oh my goodness. Excuse me. That's my phone. I'm so sorry. I thought I put it on silent. It's one of my alarms. <laughs> um, this is diagnosed on CT scan. Anything else, really, you're not diagnosing this on CT scan if you're in the emergent or hospital setting. Outpatient, um, they come in oftentimes complaining of reflux. Um, if they have a huge hiatal hernia and you try to place an NG tube, you're going to be really concerned that you went into the lung and you didn't because you went into the stomach, which is next to the lung. So you're okay. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. If it's a, uh, most hiatal hernias are repaired now laparoscopically or robotically. Um, you could theoretically still replace them thoracically because thoracic surgeons used to be trained as general surgeons before the Great Divide. Um, but... Most of the time, you're going to repair these robotically, laparoscopically, plus or minus a mesh to reinforce your repair, depending on how large the hernia is. You also always want to make sure that once you have, um, when you're doing the surgery and you're staring up into your inlet and your esophagus is coming through, that you are able to pull the esophagus back into the chest and you want it to be resting lax, comfortably and loosely into the abdomen with at least three or four centimeters into the abdomen to prevent recurrence. If you still have, it's like any hernia, if you still have attachments of the sac in the chest and it's pulling the esophagus up, your, your repair is going to be useless because the power of that chronically incarcerated hernia is just going to retract your esophagus back into your chest. Next slide. I should also actually add one more thing. This is a different mental category from a traumatic diaphragmatic hernia. You treat them very differently. This is someone who's coming in with a herniation of contents through the normal esophageal opening. If you have a patient who's coming in during a trauma and half their colon is in their chest, you're going to fix that very differently, which I'm sure they will discuss in the trauma setting. So I will leave that for now. Um, Mallory Weiss tears tend to be really, really scary in appearance, but are not that big of a deal. Um, they tend to be people who have had chronic retching. They always say it's alcoholics because alcoholics are chronically retching, but anyone can chronically retch or can have an acute episode of retching. I've seen it in patients who have um, like a really bad gastroenteritis. They'll come in with multiple, multiple bouts of retching and then they start having bleeding and everyone gets really scared because, oh my God, they perforated or there's an ulcer and it's a Mallory Weiss tear. You're typically self-limited. You can see them on endoscopy. Sometimes they will um, intervene on them, but honestly, most of the time you're going to cause more bleeding by trying to fix them. So you just leave them be. Next slide. Um, we talked a little bit already about esophageal perforations. Uh, number one is iatrogenic. We do this to a lot of people. 
are bad. Um, mostly the GI doctors. Because anytime you can, what are the ABCs of surgery? Accuse, blame, and criticize. <laughs> um, so uh, perforations, like any hollow viscous, are concerning. Um, if it's the most common tends to be distal, iatrogenic, most common is your cricopharyngeus or your Killian's triangle. Um, now, this is where it's really important to know your anatomy because your approach will be different and your treatment will be different. Um, a leak in the neck or any kind of esophageal tumor in the neck, you're going to be approaching from the left. Any kind of surgical intervention in the mid-cervical or the mid-thoracic, you're going to be approaching from the right. And when you're closer to the lower part of the esophagus and the abdomen, lower thoraco-abdominal region, left thoracotomy. It's following the natural course of the esophagus as it goes left, right, left. That always helps me remember that. Um, so if you can, you do try to treat these conservatively. NPO, very carefully placed NG tube. Some surgeons say don't even place the NG tube. It's not worth it. But I was always taught there's two types of diets, NPO with an NG tube or everything else. If there's fluids and saliva and liters and liters going through, it doesn't matter if you don't have an NG tube. I'll get off my soapbox. Um, so you may have to drain locally. Um, if you're doing a primary repair of your surgical, let's say you're doing a lower esophageal and you're approaching from a left thoracotomy, there's a lot of actually really interesting flaps you can do to reinforce. Kind of if you think of it like a gram patch, that helps, except there's no momentum in the chest. So what are you going to use? Anything else that has a good blood supply. Urinocostals, uh, sometimes even pleura. I have done a pericardial flap. It's a little bit terrifying, but it's kind of like a pericardial window. And then you just kind of flop it up and over onto your repair. Um, if it's a delayed presentation, you may need to do debridement um, or reconstruction. Um, and always don't forget, just like any other organ, if you can't put it back together, if there's massive contamination, divert and get out. Diversion in the esophagus is often a spit fistula, which patients have a really hard time with because you're essentially creating a hole in their neck. And if they drink, it comes out their neck. You can live with that. It's gross and terrifying, but it's better than dying. Next question. And also, of course, you place a uh, feeding tube. Next slide. Um, caustic injuries tend to show up a lot on abscite because we don't see them that often, but it's very important to know how to treat them. Acids cause coagulation, necrosis, bases cause liquefactive. Um, everybody always wants to put activated charcoal down or whatever. Don't put anything down. Leave it be. Don't wash it. Don't flush it. Don't put tubes down. Um, these are like burns, essentially, but in the esophagus. So you want to make sure that you um, treat them carefully because a burned esophagus perforates. Um, if it's asymptomatic and they're breathing okay, they're swallowing okay, they're managing their secretions, you can sometimes get away with observation. Mild injuries, you keep them NPO, you keep them in a monitored setting. If it's a full thickness injury, they're not eating for a while. Um, you will typically need to do a resection of the necrotic area. Um, and of course, you need to know the sequela. Um, anything that can cause any kind of caustic injury can lead to a stricture um, and also cancer. So these patients have a long road ahead of them. Next slide.
Oh, and I, I should have said on the prior slide, as always, airway comes first. It doesn't matter what happened to the esophagus if they're not breathing. That's the rule of trauma, and it's the rule of the esophagus, too. Um, Barrett's esophagus, they actually really like to ask about the cell type and the differentiation when you have dysplasia. So keep in the back of your mind, squamous mucosa of the esophagus undergoes intestinal metaplasia. Um, you, it's essentially reflux plus. So you started with reflux. You didn't treat your reflux. Don't point fingers at me. <laughs> you didn't treat your reflux. It got worse. And now you developed dysphagia and persistent heartburn and sometimes pain and discomfort with swallowing. You're going to do biopsies. Um, they never clarified this. So this is an important point. When we're saying take random biopsies, we mean biopsy in four quadrants. Boom, boom, boom. So wait, one, two, three, four. Yeah, four quadrants. Um, usually about every centimeter of the affected area. I always wanted to biopsy the whole esophagus. You'd be taking 600 biopsies. So if you're a three centimeter area, you're going to do that three times. Um, and you're doing that every couple of years to check for your dysplasia. If it has progressed to dysplasia and there's a high enough risk that you're concerned for cancer, you're going to proceed to esophagectomy. Next slide. Um, so now we've progressed to cancer. It's a bad day. Um, adenocarcinoma, more common than squamous cell, but squamous cell does crop up. It tends to be very heavily associated with lifestyle factors, your smokers, your drinkers, unfortunately, your achalasia patients who didn't choose that, um, and your caustic injuries. Um, so those patients, again, anytime you're trying to picture what does this patient look like, your patient is a smoker, or they're a drinker, they come in with chest pain, they come in with weight loss, they come in with fatigue. Sometimes they complain of difficulty swallowing, but that's not usually like, they're not coming in with obstructive symptoms normally, unless it's really far advanced um, and, they're and they're causing a complete blockage of, of the tube. Get more Absite content in your daily routine. Visit us on Instagram at daily.absite.fact, on Facebook at Absite Smackdown, or LinkedIn at Absite Smackdown. And you can catch the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any place you listen to your favorites. Don't forget our YouTube channel, Absite Smackdown. Um, so you'd start to see smooth narrowings on barium swallow. If it's more advanced, you start to see more of an apple coring. Apple cores are delightful and delicious, except in the setting of cancer, in which case they're very scary because you start to get an uneven narrowing, like someone took a bite out of an apple, and those can be obstructive as well. Um, so you're going to do, um, as with all cancers, tissue biopsy is essential and necessary to make a diagnosis. You're going to stage with typically CT, sometimes PET CT, and um kind of a little bit going back into the rectal you can do because you can get in with an endoscopy you can also get a really great staging from endoscopic ultrasound where you can see the layers of perforation on the eus um they're not perforation i beg your pardon invasion next slide um adenocarcinoma is the most common that you'll see in the esophagus um, you will see the same kinds of symptoms and you will stage it the same way. Um, really early stages. Sometimes you can endoscopically resect most of them early one to twos. You're going to be doing some kind of esophagectomy, um, two, three, and four. 
or two and three rather, you're going to be treating non-surgically for your palliating. Esophageal cancer is bad and it advances very quickly because what layer was missing? Do we think about that? While you're thinking about that, let's go through staging. T1 invades directly into the submucosa. T2 is into your muscularis. T3 is into your adventitia and T4 is adjacent. Um, did you say subserosa? Did you? Did you? If you did, it's important to note because the uh, lympha not excuse me the lymphatics run in um, the submucosal layer. So once you get penetration through that layer, you tend to have already advanced beyond um, into a higher stage cancer. Uh, five year survival is very low. Um, the esophageal cancers and their surgical interventions are a little bit barbaric and they're not very typically survivable. Uh, next slide. Um, so we talked about five years survival. Um, surgical resection is the same for any surgical resection of a primary malignancy. You want to resect the tumor with negative margins. Make sure you get all of your lymph nodes and reconstruct with a good blood supply. Um, Post-op complications, depending on where you're resecting and how you're approaching your tumor, um, you have to think about an asthmatic leak. You have to think about the morbidity from the surgery itself. Um, and when you're thinking about surgical planning, like it says, a leak in the neck is a lot easier to manage than a leak in the chest. The chest is kind of a black box and harder to deal with. So if you have a leak in the neck, you can debride, you can divert. It's a lot easier to access. So there's a lot of different surgical approaches. Um, typically involves at least two incisions. Uh, we are most helpful anatomically from the surgical side to the general surgery side. Laparotomy and neck incisions. The anastomosis gets pulled through. This is also called sometimes a gastric pull through um, into the neck. And the Ivor Lewis is similar, except the anastomosis is in the chest. So the highest morbidity comes from, again, the leak, which is in the chest. Um, and it has a right thoracotomy because you tend to be mid-chest, right? So remember, left, right, left. Okay, good. Uh, the three-hole is kind of very advanced, and a lot of academic centers will do it, but you make the neck, right thoracotomy, and laparotomy incisions. Next slide. All right, we did it. We made it to the questions. All right, friends. Um, so a uh, 55-year-old male undergoes esophageal endoscopy to rule out a malignancy. And post-op, he's complaining of chest pain. He demonstrates a new left pleural effusion. What is your most appropriate next step? All right. So, um, oh, sorry about that. Um, so, yes, it's in, the answer is C, uh, gastrographin, then followed by thin barium. The idea being that thin barium is um, more uh, toxic to the lungs, so you don't use it as a first line. However, it is a better diagnostic tool because what we're looking for is a perforation. So we're going to follow the leak 
If the gastrographin can't find it, if it's a small leak, then we proceed to barium. Next slide. All right. Given that we know that this patient underwent endoscopy, where is the most likely location of injury? Sorry, friends. Oop. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, distal esophagus. Uh, all right. 17-year-old male with a history of GERD per complaints of difficulty uh, eating and swallowing solid food. What is your most appropriate next step? That's right you can do a barium swallow. Don't be tempted, because we're general surgeons. We love the wheel of truth. Don't go straight to your CT scan, because it's not going to show you what you need to know. What you need to know is, is there a blockage? Is there an obstruction? So you're going to have them swallow thick, or like the, the barium, which is heavy and has a weight and it's a liquid. So it can kind of get around obstructions usually, because it has been thinned out. Um, manometry may end up being a part of your workup, but it wouldn't really be my first step because I want to rule out an obstruction first. Next slide. Um, in the above patient, now you've gotten your barium swallow and it showed a stricture, which is great that you did your barium swallow. What's your next step? That's right, you're gonna do an EGD with biopsy. Why? Because we need to know what we're dealing with. Is this a benign stricture? Is this some kind of weird webbing? Is this a narrowing due to repeated exposure to acid? Is this cancer? You need to know. So that's why you're gonna proceed next to your biopsy. All right, next slide. All right, so this is a question that just keeps on giving. All right, so you did your biopsy and it comes back as Barrett's. Now what? That's right. You're going to do a scope every two years. Um, sometimes you can space it out more as they are, if they're staying negative, and you can even abolish if they aren't progressing at all. But for the most part, you're gonna keep screening these patients for a good long while because risk of cancer. Next slide. Uh, 
And that's the end of our show, friends. That's all she wrote. So I hope you had a productive session. Hopefully esophagus isn't quite so intimidating. Um, and really the best thing you can do is just keep reading, keep reviewing. Um, if you don't understand something, don't just move forward. Make sure you stop and look it up or ask one of your senior residents. They've been through this at least a couple of times, so they should be able to give you a point in the right direction. Um, so does anyone have any questions? It's okay if no. You can also send them in later. The Absite Smackdown podcast now has a live review. Get your access for the only review conference that works best with your schedule. On call? Can't travel? No time for an expensive hotel room or plane ticket? We've got you covered. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and select latest news to learn more and sign up today. All right. Well, it sounds like nobody has any questions. If you do think of something later, please feel free to reach out. This is confusing to all of us, and it's important to get good resources and to start reviewing early and often. So thank you very much for letting me be a part of your absite review and um, preparation, and don't be afraid to reach out if you guys need anything. Have a good rest of your night. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at AbsiteSmackdown.com for more great Absite facts.